Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me this week, as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going? Really well. We are starting to see a bit of fall creeping in here in uh, North Dakota. So it uh, dropped about 30 degrees, it seemed, over the last couple days, which has been interesting. We went from like 90 to 60, basically overnight. So happy to be back, though, hanging out, taking a little bit of a break from obsessing over the baseball playoffs. And we're going to talk a little bit about Captain Marvel, or more specifically, Carol Danvers, her entire history from her first introduction all the way up to uh, sort of her redis, um, reintroduction as Captain Marvel. Get us ready for the Captain Marvel movie we're going to be watching next week, starring, of course, Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson. Yes, yes. I'm very, very interested because I have not... I we, We've touched on a lot of characters over the course of, of the, the show, but I don't feel like we've touched on... Carol Danvers all that much. We've seen seen the character in and out of some of the stories, but I, I definitely felt like this was a character I wanted to learn some more about. So strap in. We're going to be doing that. But before we do, we're going to talk some comic book news. And our main story is Marvel reveals the new Ultimate Avengers team. So if you've been following, there's a Marvel's Ultimate Invasion that is setting the foundation for a new Ultimate Universe. And that universe is kicking off with Ultimate Universe number one later this year. And in fact, actually, it's next month. As seen in Ultimate Invasion number four, there's a new group of Avengers that take the mantle of the world's greatest protectors. And now we know who that main team is going to be. That new squad is going to include Reed Richards, who is wearing this Doctor Doom style mask that he got during the Ultimate Invasion run. We have Thor, we have Iron Lad, Lady Sif, and Captain America, though in the previews, he's still frozen in a block of ice. So this is, so presumably he's on the cover and, and presumably he's going to be a part of the team. And the reason I brought this one up is this is going to be written by Jonathan Hickman, which about five weeks ago or so during the Black Panther movie episode we talked about the fact that there was another Marvel book that Jonathan Hickman was going to be a part of that he wasn't really sure how he, he ended up being involved, but then he figured out a way to be involved with the, the Avengers. And now we have, we have some information as to what that is, or basically that should be this series here. Uh, as I said, the book comes out next month. It goes on sale November 1st. Jonathan Hickman, writer, artist, Stefano Caselli, colors by David Curiel and the cover for issue one is by Brian Hitch. So if you want to check it out, there'll be a link in the show notes. There's the cover, which looks really cool. You've got all the Avengers kind of, you know, flying slash running into into battle, sort of, sort of, so to speak. And then some some actual preview pages from that first issue. There you go. Does anybody write comics these days other than Jonathan Hickman? Or <laughs> is he actually the only person 
Who's and allowed to write the Marvel comic book. cornered the market in, uh, in books right now. That is, that is nuts. Right, well, it'll be interesting. We'll see how it goes. I'm suspecting that there will be at least a lot of interest initially, and then we'll see how it goes. Uh, if they find a way to recapture that Ultimate Universe magic, that would be cool. All right, looking at Marvel Unlimited this week, there are two number ones that are going to be available. X-Men Before the Fall, Sinister Four number one, and then Thor Annual number one. And the Thor Annual number one caught my eye, and the description sounds really interesting. It says, Enter Mythos. When Modok, fueled by revenge and a refusal to ever again be someone else's pawn, seizes control of all ten realms but Asgard, Thor the Allfather must step in and regain control of the ten realms and the world tree. But Modok's new cosmic power proves to be greater threat than Thor can imagine, and he'll need the inspiration of some beloved friends from Midgard to reclaim his realms and his awesome power. This book also includes an exclusive prologue to the Immortal Thor run, which started in August. This book came out July 5th. So if you want to see that prologue into the Immortal Thor, if this sounds like an interesting story, this is going to be available this week on Marvel Unlimited. It just looked cool to me. Excellent. Well, and anytime you get something like that, you can get in on the start of a new big storyline. It's always kind of a good thing to check out if you like it great if not well then you gave it a try and you can move on but it's good to get in early if uh, if it's something you're you think you might enjoy dan do you have a recommendation for us for this week yeah so this goes back a little ways but back in the day i used to review uh comic book history books essentially and one of them that i'd like to recommend for folks who are interested in this sort of stuff is, and hopefully if you're listening to a podcast about Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, you're, you've got some interest in this sort of stuff. It's called Superhero Culture Wars, Politics, Marketing, and Social Justice in Marvel Comics. And it's by Monica Flegel and Judith Bagot. Actually a really interesting look at especially the, the 21st century in Marvel Comics and how Marvel has attempted to sort of thread the needle between making existing fans happy and then expanding out some of their their line to to hopefully be able to win some new readers in and make their uh their universe sort of more broadly accessible and a lot of the same stuff that's been happening within the the mcu we saw in the early 21st century in the marvel universe as well with varying levels of success and reader engagement and reader pushback. So it's really interesting stuff. There's a few books out there, but I did like this one. I thought it was really pretty interesting. And there's quite a lot of Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, Captain Marvel content in it. So if you're interested in Carol Danvers, there's a, there's basically a chapter that talks quite a lot about her. And then also Ms. Marvel, uh, Kamala Khan as well. That sounds good. We'll have a link. I'm assuming this is a link to your review of this. Yes, it's kind of a, a spider web through the, the internet. Uh, the, we'll put a link to my review in the show notes. And then that at the bottom also has 
links to places where you can buy or find the book if you're interested in taking a look at it. All right, sounds good. That is it for the news. Let's jump in and talk about the stack. Dan, what did we read this week and why did you pick these particular books? So first off, I'm assuming you're going to yell at me for the book, the comics I had you read this week <laughs> because I sort of parachuted you down in the middle of a bunch of storylines. You did. In a yes. way that you know, being being just dropped into 1980s X-Men for one book with no explanation is not particularly easy to do. So, nonetheless, the books that we're going to look at are Marvel Superheroes number 13, Ms. Marvel number 1, Avengers 200, Uncanny X-Men number 164, and Captain Marvel from 2012 number 1 through 6. And the reason for these books, the first one, Marvel Superheroes number 13, is actually the first appearance of Carol Danvers. Ms. Marvel number 1, from 1977 is when she gets her powers for the first time and becomes a superhero instead of supporting character. Avengers 200. In my show notes, I've got... Gives you an idea of the shit this character's had to deal with, essentially. Because yeah, that her, her backstory is crazy. That book is weird. Uncanny X-Men 164. Uh, there's a point at which Carol Danvers loses her powers again, and this is where she gets them back. Becomes a character called Binary. And then Captain Marvel 2012, we're reading the first arc, uh, books one through six, and this is where, finally, after 40-some years, she takes the name Captain Marvel and sort of moves into the uh, the legacy that had kind of been, uh, been her right and her destiny for a long time. Some interesting stuff, but, uh, yes. but probably, well, I suspect you'll have questions. I, I do. Let's let's start at the beginning, Marvel Superheroes number 13, and our very first introduction to Carol Danvers. Absolutely. So, first off, this story written by Roy Thomas, drawn by Gene Colan, uh, inked by Paul Reinman, colorist Stan Rosenberg, editor Sam, Ro uh, Sam Rosen, uh, or letterer Sam Rosen, and editor Stan Lee. So, Thomas is somebody who was kind of a, an acolyte of Stan Lee. He was his number two, basically, by this point. And he was writing a lot of these books. And Gene Colan, absolutely fantastic artist who spent years on Doctor Strange and Daredevil and Captain Marvel and eventually did Tomb of Dracula, this sort of stuff. He's one of the, the greats of the Marvel 60s and 70s. So some good guys on this. Um, and it is... A book where we kind of see a story in progress. There were two issues of Marvel superheroes featuring Captain Marvel. Issue number 12 introduced Marvel of the Kree, lead character of the series, and number 13 continued his story and introduced the Cape's head of security, Carol Danvers. Marvel had come to Earth to find out what had happened to a Kree sentry robot, but he mostly ended up working trying to keep from being murdered by his own commanding officer named Yonrog, who was in love with Marvel's girlfriend Una, another of the officers on their mission. Danvers and her team have found the damaged sentry robot and are examining it at the Cape, a military installation that is assumed to be Cape Canaveral, but is never actually specified as that. 
Marvel is able to infiltrate the cape under the assumed entity of Walt Lawson. And as number 13 ends, yon activates the robot, hoping that it will destroy Captain Marvel. But in fact, it immediately proceeds to look around, decide everything human is a threat, and begin to get ready to destroy the base and its personnel. Marvel's story in Marvel Superheroes ends there, even though there's a blurb on the last page saying it will be continued in number 14. Never fear though, the battle actually picks up in the brand new Captain Marvel number 1 a month or so later. Marvel, Captain Marvel continues to explore Earth, and Carol Danvers is initially one of his foils, as she appears to be suspicious of the Walt Lawson persona and continually is trying to ask questions about who Captain Marvel is or who Walt Lawson really is and expose him. Things do get weird quickly in this series though, mostly due to Rick Jones related developments and Danvers' role diminishes as the series goes on. So what do you think of this story? It's a rather unassuming introduction to the character actually if you'd have told me that this like head of security person was going to end up having superpowers and be basically one of the strongest characters in in the marvel universe you you wouldn't you wouldn't think so just by this by this uh a very unassuming introduction and yep. uh, like i and i don't have a problem with that i, th I think it's interesting i i liked I liked the character. She seemed smart. She seemed like she was on top of things. She's head of security. And she's like, hey, why are you bringing this random guy into this highly sensitive area and showing off this tech that we don't entirely know what it is? And they're like, no, 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 you don't know. It's no big deal. This guy, this guy's fine. I, I'm vouching for him. So this is, this is okay. And she's like, no, this is, this is bad. We shouldn't be doing this. I'm going to keep my eye on you. And it's like, it's like she knows. And uh, I, I like it when, you know, if, if this character is going to be important, seeing right from the very start that, that, that she has, has her wits about her and, and understands what's going on and thing that things that shouldn't just be trusted aren't trusted then then i like that yep and it's interesting because she actually starts her her career in marvel as a woman who's in a position of power she is essentially the head of security for a place that is pretty much the it it's it is cape canaveral but they never say cape canaveral they just call right. it the cape right so a very, very large military establishment that's doing some significant things. And this is actually kind of unusual for this time in Marvel Comics to have a woman who's entered into the story at that sort of level of authority. The idea that, yeah, she doesn't trust Marvel when he comes in, because the way he's gotten his identity is literally there's somebody else flying along in a plane coming toward the cape. Somehow, while attempting to kill Marvel. His, his boss, his senior officer, instead shoots down the plane, kills the actual Walt Lawson. And so Marvel comes along, sees his ID laying there, goes, hey, yes. I look kind of like this guy. I bet I could sneak into a, you know, high security military base if I just take his wallet. And so it's super sketchy. And there's right. every reason for her to be suspicious, right? Uh -huh. um, so it's it's good, actually. That, that this happens, but it does mean that he's always kind of looking over his shoulders. 
I think that in many ways, the allegory, the best allegory to this is that if you think of the way that Superman and Lois Lane have had this relationship for a long time where they're kind of romantic, but for a long time they weren't, like there was always a reason why they never went out, even though Superman was always, you know, interested in Lois and Lois was interested in Superman. Lois had no interest in Clark Kent though. Kind of the same thing. She thinks that Lawson is super sketchy, but she's very intrigued by Captain Marvel. They never actually end up dating though. And eventually it just sort of, um, it just sort of evaporates that part of the story and she wanders off. So, but it, it really does feel a lot like Superman and Lois Lane, that in many ways, Captain Marvel or Captain Marvel or Marvel when he came in almost was going to be or was patterned after a Superman for Marvel Comics. That makes that makes sense on on a lot of levels. And I can definitely now that you mention it, I can sort of start to see that even just in this very first introduction, and I imagine it only kind of ramped up from there. So one other weird thing that you probably wouldn't have known, but if you look at the cover of the book we read, the strange thing about it is that it says Marvel superheroes featuring Captain Marvel, and then it says, you know, where stocks the Sentry Plus, the Submariner, Captain America, the Human Torch, the Black Knight, and the Vision. Did you see any of those characters? You know, now that you mention it, no, there is none of those characters are like in this story at all. So what happened evidently is there were some reprints and the like, and there were other stories and Marvel just doesn't put them on. So there were a number of reprints of things from like Submariner comments, comics from back in the forties and things like that. And they just don't put them in. So Marvel Superheroes 13 is actually a really large book. It's probably 60, 70 pages. Uh, it's got kind of the square-boned spine and everything because it was bigger. But sure. when you read it on Marvel Unlimited, it's just 20 pages. Yeah, it's And it's, it's 20 just pages. the Captain Marvel story. So I, I found that I, kind of odd. I, I remember seeing that at the beginning when I first looked at it and then I read the story and I had kind of forgotten that that was listed at the bottom of the, of the cover and didn't even think about it. Yeah. Cause I was first worried when I started in, I'm like, Oh man, he's going to end up reading 50 pages of useless reprints. And then I'm going to have to explain that I probably should have told him not to worry about that, but they're just not there. So there you go. My lack of planning ended up not hurting us, even though it could have. So, But normally, yes, these Marvel superheroes books are going to have a bunch of additional content. And they did that back in the day. They could take old stuff that they had rights to from just in the closet, reprint it, and then instead of charging 10 or 12 cents, they'd be able to put a quarter on it instead and make some additional cash. So, in any case, though, that's your introduction. Not a whole lot of anything particularly spectacular but from the beginning you can see you know she's a, a relatively accomplished uh, woman who's got uh, who's got ideas about some of these heroes and not trusting them farther than she can throw them let's move on to the the second book in the stack miss marvel number one now how how far after superheroes number 13 did this book end up coming out the superheroes, um, Marvel superheroes, Captain Marvel, like number 
12, 13, uh, those were in the 1968 range. And this is 77. So you're talking okay. about a 10-year gap between when she was in Captain Marvel and when she takes over here. There had been some appearances in there, but really nothing particularly important for the character happened during that decade. It was largely just uh, just forgotten, partly because Captain America or Captain Marvel himself did not end up having that terribly big a footprint, especially in the, the early part of the 70s. He kind of kind of disappeared a little bit. 1977's Ms. Marvel number one starts out with a mysterious powered woman breaking up a bank robbery and then breaks away to a discussion between J. Jonah Jameson and Carol Danvers, who has left the security industry and he is now hiring her to be the editor of the Daily Bugle's Woman magazine. Danvers names her terms and ends up getting the job, after which she meets Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson. Soon after this, the Scorpion captures Jameson, kidnaps him, and plans to kill him as vengeance for Jameson's part in making him the Scorpion years ago. Ms. Marvel's seventh sense warns her of this danger and leads her to Scorpion's lair, where she saves J. Jonah Jameson. The issue ends with Jameson demanding that Danvers run an expose on Ms. Marvel, though, as he's angry at the way in which she saved his life, but did not actually free him when she was done. Over the next few issues, Danvers continues to black out, and Ms. Marvel appears mysteriously around the same time. Eventually, Carol remembers some of her backstory, including the explosion that gave her her powers, which is a retcon of events from way back in Captain Marvel number 18, and she realizes that in fact she is Ms. Marvel. Over the next few issues, she continues to change unexpectedly, and her personality changes when she becomes Ms. Marvel to somebody who is more of a sort of Cree warrior type persona, in a way that's very similar to the way Billy Batson and Captain Marvel shared the same body at different times and had different personalities. So, that's our first issue. We could have read more of these, but I think the first one gives you a pretty good idea of kind of where things are going to go with this and how it works. So, what did, what did you think of 70s Carol Danvers? It's weird. I, I didn't, I, I'm going to tell you, I wasn't really a fan of this. I first was surprised to see Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson have cameos in this and J. Jonah Jameson is in this. Um, just kind of surprised me. I think the thing that bothered me is this whole blackout thing and having this character come become like you have Carol Danvers who's then blacks out and then suddenly this alter ego that she's not even aware of is doing all these miraculous things. And then there, there's really no like handoff or explanation or anything. And, and maybe it becomes more clear and more interesting as you get further into the story, but it just, I, I didn't really care for that. I guess it just sort of felt I don't know. I don't want to say lazy, but it just sort of didn't sit right with me, I guess. So I think what's going on here is, and whether it was successful or not, is that this is actually one of those, and we're going to talk, I think, a lot about legacy. I have I have spent a lot of time just staring at the walls this, this week, actually pondering the 
the whole Captain Marvel legacy thing. And I think it's really interesting when you go back and start thinking about these, how maybe even unintentionally, or, or maybe intentionally, writers have been sort of just continually tapping into that, that legacy back through not only Marvel, but through Captain Marvel from Fawcett, like the you know, Shazam character. Because when Billy Batson would say Shazam and become Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel would be a different person, essentially. There'd still be some Billy in there, right? Uh, right. But they were very much, when one appeared, the other one disappeared. Yes. And so I think that really what we see here with the power changes and the fact that there's kind of this flash of light when, uh, when Ms. Marvel appears and Carol Danvers goes away is they're attempting to call back to the original Captain Marvel and to tap into that idea of the transformation where he would say Shazam, the only difference being that she is not intentionally doing it, that there is some seventh sense within Ms. Marvel that just knows danger is appearing, and then the hero sort of forces her way out and goes off and saves James, right? So I, I also agree that I don't know it worked great. I think probably in the long term, the writers realized it didn't work great because it didn't last very well. It was a few issues That's and good. out. And she got her yeah. memories back and she's got some people she talked to about, you know, why exactly all this was happening and the like. I also think it. I should note that I use the word retcon. It's really not a retcon. In, the, in Captain Marvel number 18... There was an explosion that Captain Marvel shielded Carol Danvers from. And what this story ends up telling us is that when he shielded her from this explosion of this Kree machine that was essentially a wishing machine that uh, was so powerful that the Kree had sent it to the earth to be buried so that no one could use it. When that exploded, it essentially almost like sent radiation through Captain Marvel and into Carol and fused to or modified her DNA so that she was actually essentially sort of like a half-human, half-cree hybrid at that point. And she didn't immediately get powers, but later on, that's kind of when she becomes Ms. Marvel, how it happens is that she really does get her powers from Captain Marvel. So they move through this. I, I think the interesting thing when you look at this book, though, is how absolutely tied to 1970s feminism this comic book is and that's interesting because of course it's it's being written um by jerry conway uh penciled by john basema inked by joe sinnott colored by marie severin lettered by john costanza and edited by jerry conway who also wrote it so the only the only female character or female creator was the colorist Marie Severin. on the first page though uh, it says at the beginning conceived written and edited by jerry conway with an asterisk and then down at the bottom it says with more than a little aid and abetment from carla conway who was his first wife so he does note that he's like i may not be super intelligent but i'm smart enough not to write ms marvel without at least you know, getting some input from a, a woman on how some of this should be done. Outside of that, 
when you look at Ms. Marvel, uh, especially when she's doing a lot of her stuff with Woman Magazine and the like, it's pretty obvious that she is a kind of an allegory of one of the most prominent feminists of the time because she looks an awful lot like Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem founded Ms. Magazine. She now works for Woman Magazine. The tie-in to this also is that when Ms. Magazine first appeared, the cover of the very first magazine was a, a picture of Wonder Woman. And so now when, when Marvel comes out with their sort of feminist-leaning uh, book to try and get um, you know young women involved and, and bring them in, they do a nod back. Or maybe they were just jealous that a DC character was used and they want to get Ms. Magazine, Ms. Uh, get Ms. Magazine's attention. Who really knows? She's a hero. She's got a job. She's given J. Jonah Jameson what for regularly on salary and everything else. Um, so kind of interesting, especially early on. A lot of that kind of loses steam relatively quickly in this series. But starting out, that's at least the direction they were going. She felt like the a natural continuation of that same character we were introduced a decade yep. prior in Marvel Superheroes. Again, a very smart, no nonsense. I'm the I, she goes in and basically says, you know, you're you're gonna do this and it's gonna be on my terms. And she's like negotiating salary and she's like not budging. And Jonah keeps having to go up until finally he agrees with her. On, on what she's going to get paid and everything and it's just like yeah this is this is a this is a cool character it just the the blackouts thing just didn't 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 work for me no and i think even the cover there's two or three things first off you mentioned the the presence of spider-man and mary jane if marvel is wanting to make sure that a book sort of sells some copies back in the day putting spider-man anywhere in it was going to guarantee at least a certain number of people would buy that book just to see right. what's up with Spider-Man, right? So yeah. seeing Peter Parker and Mary Jane and, and Jameson on the cover is one way of trying to just get some eyeballs, get some people to buy that book, give it a try. And they did that for a lot of characters. Um, also, I think it's interesting that up in the corner, the, the little tagline is, you know, Ms. Marvel, this female fights back, right? So it's it's very much going that there's going to be um, kind of a not just a, a lead character who's a woman but that it's going to very much have a slant towards that kind of angle which makes Avengers 200 probably one of the most infuriating books I've ever read in recent memory yeah yeah when we look at this book it comes out in 1980 so it's maybe been a year since captain marvel's comic ends up being canceled maybe even less she's an avenger or has been with the avengers on and off and so it's not that unusual seeing her there but this story yeah has has got some some things going on. You know, we've talked sometimes when we're when we're watching movies and the number of writers that you see on a screenplay sometimes leads you to worry a little bit about just what's going on. Well, this yeah. comic book has four writers. Jim Tudor, George Perez, Bob Layton, and David Michelini. 
you do not see four writers on a comic. It's one story. It's not like a bunch of different stories. So that immediately probably throws up some flags. It's penciled by George Perez, though, inked by Dan Green, who I think does a great job on Perez normally, colored by Ben, uh, ben Sean, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Jim Salakrup. I love most of these creators. Now, Jim Shooter's a piece of work, and there's no question about that. But Leighton and Michelini did the, the Iron Man book, like the yeah. know, um, Demon in a Bottle stuff that we, we enjoyed back in the day. George Perez is just one of the nicest, best people in comics. And somehow they got together to make this absolute stinker of a comic book that now lives in infamy. So let's let's take a look, right? So this is Avengers 200. Landmark issues are always events in comics, right? Rarely is one made quite as much of a lasting impact as Avengers 200 which even to this day is near the top of most worst Marvel comic ever lists. Uh, on the final page of Avengers 199, Carol Danvers had arrived at Avengers Mansion. She was seven months pregnant, which was very odd, because just a few days earlier, she was visibly not at all pregnant, and as far as she can tell, she not only does not know who the father is, but she insists there could not have been a father. Issue 200 then opens with her giving birth later that day, which all of the Avengers seem to think is just a wonderful thing. They're going around congratulating her, and Beast's like, hey, I can be a teddy bear, and everything. Nobody's worried about the fact that their friend just had a baby, like, say, 16 hours after first, you know, being pregnant. Carol knows something's wrong, though, and she privately tells the Wasp that she knows that somehow something's wrong and she's been used. When Carol finally goes to see her newborn, she finds that he has already grown to adulthood, and she notes that she is somehow strangely attracted to him. Her new son is busy, though, building a machine of some sort, and at this point the story is interrupted by dinosaurs and spaceships, and a big fight ensues where Captain America somehow manages to take time out from all the craziness to make racially inappropriate jokes, and we return to Carol and her son, who goes by Mar Marcus now, she tries to stop him from activating his machine because she doesn't know what it's doing and she's a little worried. He knocks her out and says, Forgive me, mother. Forgive me, my love. At this point, Hawkeye comes in, sees his unconscious teammate in Marcus's arms, decides something must be wrong, blows up the machine before he can activate it. Turns out the machine was going to take him back to where he was. And in fact, Marcus is the son of Immortus, who's a sort of super powerful Marvel uh, character who's, who's interacted with the Avengers before. And he had only wanted to be able to be reborn on Earth. So he found Carol, brought her to his dimension in limbo, wooed her, and with what he says is the subtle hypnotic boost from his father's machines, made her fall in love with him, at which point he was able to impregnate her with himself send her back to Earth, where she then gave birth to him so that he could be in a born on Earth and be able to stay. Previously, his limbo body could not stay on Earth for more than a little bit of time and had to go back. At which point, after that, he builds the machine to bring him back to limbo so that he can, he can do something. He has to be back in a certain amount of time for the whole process to take. 
because he doesn't have his machine anymore, Carol's like sort of still under his sway. So she's like, well, I don't know, but I don't want you to have to go alone, so I'll go with you. Thor's like, oh, this sounds great. Swings his hammer and takes them back to Limbo. And everybody's happy for her because she's uh, she's found her man and wandered off with him. So. That sounds as ridiculous and terrible as it sounds. It's because it is. And yeah. it is just laid out there across 37 pages. It's a double issue. And it does... The recap doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but the book itself, the story does not make a whole lot of sense. It just, it just sort of happens and it's messed up. It's weird. It's sexist. I, I, I honestly, I'm reading this and it's just, it's almost infuriating that nobody is listening except the wasp to Carol saying, this shouldn't be happening to me. I don't know what's going on. And then to have her somehow miraculously attracted to this now fully grown man that she gave birth to like less than 24 hours ago is just so messed up. I don't know what they were, what these writers were trying to accomplish, but nothing about this story really sat well with me at all. No. And and it's in in context, especially it gets really weird. I also find it strange because and and Wasp, by the way, also does not does not really help. She's there, you know, congratulating her on her beautiful baby boy and whatever. And Carol's more like groggy and just going, "Just leave me alone," because I don't understand. Right. So none of them are get it get it right initially. Um, what's weird though is. This is a 200th issue of a superhero comic, and a good part of it is spent on somebody having a baby, which is very odd. There's, you would think normally there's big battles, there's whatever else. Yes, we get a dinosaur battle and the like, but that's maybe five pages of this. It is almost all sort of just family melodrama from within the Avengers, and then this weird messed up sort of pregnancy where where she ends up having her her boyfriend's self yes there there's actually it almost feels like there is more pages dedicated to marcus explaining what has happened and why things are the way they are at the end of this book than there is any sort of like battle right because he because you get to this point about three quarters of the way through your book and you're just like how is he an adult and why is carol now attracted to him and so he basically takes the next three or four pages and just explains everything that happened and so you finally start to understand i guess where the where this story how how this story came to be and it and it even there, it just doesn't really make sense when it when it's all said and done. The, like the payoff of this, it just doesn't land. It's just you're just like, what? Why? Why did you spend issue two hundred doing this? This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and I mean, Immortus is a weird character. The timey wimey stuff and the limbo and everything always does get strange. But this is this is just indicative of they had no idea what to do with this character 
And so they just sort of threw her away. And they're like, let's just, you know, her, her book's been canceled. She's technically really too powerful to interact well with the Avengers because she's kind of a Superman, right? So let's just send her away to limbo and then we don't have to deal with her for a while. But the way they did it was was not great. So it's what's interesting terrible. about this is that it did not take long for the letter columns and even other people like other creators reading this to let them know that what they'd done was super messed up. And Chris Claremont actually, in fact, tried to fix things a bit in an annual a little ways later, Avengers Annual number 10, by actually giving Carol a chance to come back. She sort of returns and she's in a comatose state and Professor X helps her regain her memory. And when the Avengers come to pick her up, she's like, okay, you guys, you're terrible friends. You failed me completely. And, you know, when, when she needed the most, they betrayed her. They'd made jokes. They just accepted Marcus's weird story unquestioningly. Um, and at the end, I mean, what I like is that Claremont does not give them an out. Basically, she just says, you know, you guys screwed up. You've got to do better. And it's interesting because that's kind of, you know, that, that sort of thing you sometimes just see where sometimes you've got something where you just fail a friend or whatever, and it's like, you have to do better. There's no real way you can make up for it at that point. But yeah. Essentially, they're like, you know, we're taking you back. She's like, no, I'm not going nowhere with you guys. And at this point, she decides to hang out, stay with the X-Men, and then have some adventures with them. So, Avengers 200. I, I, I'm glad that eventually some of that got, you know, put into a story. But, man, this is just such a... Yeah, you warned me. You warned us last week about Avengers 200. And like, I'm watching the opening pages and they're talking about Carol giving birth. And, and there's this, this panel where you've got basically five different Avengers. You've got Hawkeye, you've got Iron Man, you've got Captain America. And they're all sort of pacing outside the delivery room as Carol's giving birth. And I'm like okay, there's going to be some weird story about one of these guys impregnating her, and this is going to be bad. And yet somehow they made a story that was worse than that. It was terrible. It was so terrible. Way worse than that. Way worse. It was way yeah. worse. So it's best let us let us not speak of it anymore. But basically, yeah, that's, I think, a a good indication of the fact that just... Back in the days, comics did some really messed up things. And sometimes they were trying to make stories quick or whatever. But it seems that when you get this many people, and it's a a big issue, like a 200th issue, somebody had to think this was a good idea for it to pass yeah. muster. And yeah. I, uh, that's astonishing. Anyway, no. let us let us move on. Uncanny X-Men number 164. Yep. This is, this is, we have to cleanse our palate of Avengers 200. Uncanny X-Men 164, I think, is actually pretty interesting. Uh, it involves 
a alien race called the brood that i have not had not seen before so that was kind of interesting dan tell us about uncanny x-men 164 yeah i i dropped you in in the middle of a big big story there's a note yeah, so yeah this whole thing yeah, there's a yeah so let's just we'll, we'll start a little before and after and kind of fill in but so here's what happened years after ms marvel book ended She'd lost her powers off-screen to Rogue before the start of that Avengers Annual Number 10 from 1981, which was the one that that sort of tried to retcon a little bit the, the Avengers 200. After that, Professor X had helped her get her memories back, but she had no powers, and she ended up working as a pilot for the X-Men. On a mission in space, she ends up getting captured along with them by this species called the Brood, which is a nasty alien race. Brood scientists actually are interested by her odd DNA and they start experimenting on her and also have implanted Brood spawn in each of the X-Men, which will eventually grow and take over their bodies. Wolverine gets loose, does significant damage to organic life around him, as he does, and ends up freeing everyone. They escape on a ship called the Zeri Shi'ar, but they eventually find that the battle is following them. So to save her friends, in 164, Carol actually finds new powers that were likely triggered by brood manipulation of her DNA and turns into something called Binary. It's a hero who can generate nearly any sort of res radiation in massive quantities. For the next couple of issues, she puts this energy to good and very destructive use, wiping out the entire, entire brood worlds and eventually helping to save both the X-Men and the Akanti, which is a species of gentle and ancient space whales. Eventually, the Professor lets Rogue join the X-Men. Remember, this is the person who had essentially stolen Ms. Marvel's powers and also ripped out all of her memories, essentially stolen her identity in a, in a very literal sense. And the Professor lets her join because he's like, well, people need a second chance. She didn't mean to do it. He didn't understand her powers. Carol, though, makes it clear that what Rogue did to her was simply not forgivable. And so when she enters, when Rogue enters the X-Men, that point Carol takes off. Back out on her own, heading for the stars. A reasonable thing, I think, yep. Given, yep. given their history. So what do you think of the brood? The, the brooder seems scary. Yeah. They, they seem really, uh, the, they look very menacing in this, in the, in this book that we read this week. They, uh, reminded me a little bit of uh the xenomorph from from the alien franchise if you if you think yep. about what them what they look like uh they they do seem a really, lot like them mm -hmm. yeah okay that makes sense and and early 80s that that would have been yep getting in the neighborhood of when that first alien movie came out yeah too. this so that's, yeah they look they look very geigerish um, H.R. Geiger, the guy who, who kind of designed that sort of stuff, especially in their muzzles and the front part of their mouths. Then in the back, they have more like a, uh, almost like a triangular sort of, uh, sort of hood behind their head. But, and the, the weird thing about them, of course, they're super intelligent, they're spacefaring, and they lay their eggs in other beings and essentially take them over and, and then eventually mutate them. So unlike the xenomorphs, which pop out of the chest or whatever, they actually end up 
mutating the body so that if the X-Men had ended up being, uh, you know, consumed by, by the brood, they would have turned into Wolverine as a brood or, oh gosh, you know, Captain Marvel as a brood that or not Captain Marvel, um, I guess binary as a brood. So not a good thing to have your superheroes turned into brood just as a note, but but so yeah, it's a little bit different. They actually remind me, other than that, in a lot of ways of the Gorn from the recent Star Trek uh, Strange New Worlds revival, who are kind of this uh. super, super sketchy, very, very violent race that also are still scientifically advanced, you know? So... Those yep. are the scariest kind of uh, yep. enemies or, or adversaries is the ones that are that are vicious and also technologically advanced. So it's like you and have all, no. You know, all three of these are vaguely insectoid in the way that they look as well. They've got yeah. like kind of the multiple um, multiple legs and stuff like that. And the Gorn a little bit less than especially the Brood look very, very insectoid. Some of them have wings, in fact. So this did explain I didn't understand why Carol didn't have any powers really and why basically mm-hmm. at some point at some point during this book she suddenly had powers and was being called something different. So that that yep. did help explain that. That was definitely on my list of questions because yeah, there, there it did feel like there was a lot of story that led into this book and then obviously a bunch of story after this book as well. Yeah. And the weird thing is we couldn't even, that story was done off screen. So in Avengers annual number 10, it begins with spider woman, just sort of finding Carol Danvers in, in like uh, in the water off the golden gate bridge or something like that. And she's got no memories. She's got no powers. And then, Professor X has to kind of bring it back. Only later do we find out how she actually lost the powers and stuff like that. So, and, or at least actually see the incident. We knew Rogue did it, but we don't actually see the incident until later. What's also weird though is Claremont was writing Ms. Marvel by the time it got canceled. And theoretically, I think when they did finally reprint, it was stuff from the actual 24th issue of ms marvel that would have been kind of explaining this fight because rogue and mystique were going to be the villains that she'd have been facing in her own series if it had continued so since claremont was doing the annual and he was doing x-men he just sort of took that story he was developing and shoehorned it into a different direction and you know and essentially since he finished up you know ms marvel was in his care when Avengers 200 came in and did what it did. And then he's like, no, 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 give her back to me. And he just sort of sucked her back into his side of things. So Let me try and fix this mess that you've created here. You, you obviously cannot be trusted with this character. Let me, uh, let me bring her back over here. So, um, but yeah, so interesting stuff. I think that this is, this is another one of those where there's a lot of other stuff that goes on. But basically, she becomes binary. She gets the powers sort of just because she knows she gets stressed out because everybody's dying and she takes on and boom, somehow um, that transforms her, burns out whatever it is in her that was the brood was trying to do 
and then she's able to really go kind of dark phoenix on the brood a little bit because she destroys sort of entire settlements uh, at a certain point and just mows through them. She's got serious powers at that point already. All right, let's jump to the final story that we looked at this week. This is a a much newer story than the ones that we've looked at to this point. Captain Marvel, this is from 2012. This is actually, if you look at Marvel Unlimited and they talk about kind of the best books to read for the Captain Marvel character, this is one of the, the selections that they suggest. We read the first six books. Dan, tell us a little bit about Captain Marvel from 2012. Absolutely. So it's written by Kelly Sudikonik. First uh, four issues, at least, were drawn by Dexter Soy. Um, also colored and inked. He did the art entire. Joe Karamaja on letters and Stephen Wacker editing it. Nearly 30 years go by between the time when we see Carol Danvers leave the X-Men for the stars as binary and when she returns in 2012's Captain Marvel number one. During that time, she's bounced around the Marvel Universe as a cosmic adventurer. She spent time back on Earth with the Avengers. She's changed powers, changed names, changed costumes, and occasionally even disappeared entirely. It had been 45 years since Carol Danvers first appeared, and despite her A-list power set, to most readers, Ms. Marvel was still defined primarily by her famously skimpy costume and her many tragedies. Few characters have ever been as badly in need of a reimagining. Enter Kelly Sue DeConnick, who inherited a new, more serious and martial costume, courtesy of Jamie McKelvey, and immediately elevated Carol's codename, backstory, and mission. For decades, Carol Danvers had been heir to a legacy going back to the 40s, with associations to a character who went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Superman and would have beaten him if not for the interference of DC's legal department. As of this issue, she finally accepts that legacy and begins working to fulfill her promise as a hero and a character. Danvers is reimagined as a female Chuck Yeager with superpowers, and the first six issues of this series are a story that ties Carol to an older generation of female adventurers, pilots who wanted to be astronauts or fighter pilots, but were born in a time that was not ready for them. One of them, Helen Cobb, was a mentor and a friend to Carol, and her passing leads Carol to take out Helen's old plane with a goal of proving that some of her unverified records were possible in that plane. The plane, of course, ends up having a remnant of the very machine that blew up and gave Carol her powers decades ago. That remnant serves as a time machine, or sort of a wish machine, sending Carol back to 1943 and into a World War II battle in the Pacific. She helps a group of women that call themselves the Banshee Squad, take out a bunch of modified Kree tech, and then ends up back in 1961, where she helps a younger Helen Cobb to steal the very artifact that ended up being put into the plane that she found and ended up time traveling because of in 2012. So, she and Helen are transported to the very moment when Carol got her powers, and Carol has to make a choice. Do nothing and let things continue on the same path, essentially owning all of the pain and indignities decades of Marvel writers had heaped upon her, or get her younger self clear, and, as Helen says, live your life the same as anybody else. When the explosion happens, Carol chooses to leave her life unchanged, and returns to the present. 
Issue number six, which wraps up this initial arc, ends with the final words of a letter Helen left for Carol. We're going to get where we're going, you and me. Death and indignity be damned. We'll get there. And we will be the stars we were always meant to be. There we go. That's it. It's a really good story. I, I, I'm going to, I, I have to say that they did a fantastic job with this. There's a lot that happens in these six books and there's, uh, you know, we have like this main story of Carol going up, you know, finding out that her, her mentor and her hero that, that she looks to Helen Cobb has died. She goes, takes the plane, ends up back in time. And then you have this like story of Helen Cobb when she's younger and trying to get them to be fighter pilots and astronauts, this this group that, that she's with. And and then Carol ends up with her. And it's it's so it's so well done. And it, and it reminds me of that character that we kind of first saw in those initial introductions of Carol Danvers. And you're just like, this is the character that she was meant to be all along. If they hadn't screwed her up, she could have been this character sooner. But thank God they finally got there. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me because, you know, back in the 60s when she was introduced, she was a supporting character and kind of, you know, a woman who, who had a position of power and the like. But in 77, when they made her Ms. Marvel, she inherited that mantle. And this is something that really, I mean, there's so many decades of comics that you would need to read to really get the force of some of what this means. But in the 40s, Captain Marvel was the most powerful comic character for a long time. He outsold Superman regularly and was so threatening to DC that, like I said in the summary, they actually eventually sued Fawcett out of business to stop them from publishing him. And as part of the lawsuit resolution, he in fact, in like the late forties did stop being published for the better part of 30 or so years until eventually DC got the contract back or the rights back or right, got the rights and then started publishing him in Shazam. During that time, because his, his trademark sort of expired and DC wasn't doing anything to kind of preserve it. Marvel realized they could publish a, a Captain Marvel and they brought out Marvel to grab that name back for themselves or to, to get it for Marvel. That's the character that was sort of, you know, her friend and the one she followed along. And then he eventually ends up dying in a story actually in the first Marvel graphic novel called the death of Captain Marvel. And you've got basically the entire Marvel universe coming together to talk about how, you know, how important this character was. And that passing was really a very, very powerful graphic novel. So you've got that history. When she is Ms. Marvel, she's kind of like initially, you know, Supergirl to Superman, right? She's got the distaff side of Captain Marvel. But also by the fact they had her, like, initially do the you know, loses her memories when she comes back and the like, they're still hearkening back to the original Captain Marvel. And then 
eventually they just lose their way and they turn her into Warbird or they turn her into Binary or there's a time where she's just a secret agent, the code name I can't remember and the like. And then eventually, in this book, Kelly Sudakonic just goes, you know, all this time, from the very moment she put on the Captain Marvel costume, or the, the Ms. Marvel costume, this has been her destiny, right? Her destiny has been to become Captain Marvel. And so let's get this done. Yeah. And so... She does that relatively early in the thing. She's like, yeah, I'm going to take the name. And Monica Rambeau had taken Captain Marvel for a while, so she's a little grouchy about it later in the series. But for for Carol, this really was a very natural, it just fit perfectly, right? I I love the fact also, though, that besides standing on the on the shoulders of giants as far as the previous Captain Marvels, she builds this story of a history. By sending yeah. her back in time. And now you've got these generations of American sort of adventurers and pilots who are women. Who sort of set the path for Carol Danvers to become the person she is. Yeah. When, she, when she's a younger woman before she has powers. So even before she's a hero in the superhero sense. She is sort of this, you know this daredevil pilot and she is somebody who has that that sort of military background and the like and you see that these women you know either were not allowed to fight during world war ii so they instead were taking planes and flying them across the pacific to bring them over so that they could be used in the war so someone had to take them actually from the united states out there and so they would let these women fly them but they wouldn't let them actually use them in in combat and then in the 60s, you've got these women who want to be astronauts negotiate to get a chance to test for it, but are never allowed to actually become astronauts. And then eventually you get Carol's generation who actually can become fighter pilots, you know, can become astro astronauts. But the story itself, to be quite frank, I think sometimes is too confusing. Like when you read it, it's yeah. a little bit of a mess sometimes just with all the things going on and the like. Mm -hmm. But I think what it amounts to is really more of a manifesto of who Carol Danvers is and and what her, you know, what led to her, both in terms yeah. of female pilots and, and military um, folks and then also in terms of Captain Marvel superhero type stuff. It's interesting to see that as it all goes through, he also has to make that choice. And I think there's something really empowering about that because with all of the, the crap she's gotten from male Marvel writers over the last 50 some years, there's a point in these books where Carol has offered the choice to say, you've got two options. You can own all of this stuff and deal with the fact that your history is totally messed up, but you get to be the most awesome character in the universe, or you can get out of here and just live a normal life. Kind of like the choice of Achilles, you know, do you want to, do you want to live great and die young? Or do you want to live to be an old shepherd? And she's like, you know, I'm just going to leave things the way they are. And she's going to be herself. And she chooses that path with all of the nonsense 
that's in it. And that I think really helps because it takes some of that and makes it a, a little bit easier to deal with in terms of how they're going to deal with their history. Because now she's said, you know, this is awful. It shouldn't have happened to me, but this is what led me to be Captain Marvel. And so it's what it has to be. So. Yeah. I, and the interesting thing is Helen Cobb, her mentor and hero is like right there with her as she has to make that kind of decision. And I thought that was really interesting and just like, I loved, I loved seeing the Banshee squad. I loved seeing the, the, you know, those, those female pilots that wanted to be, uh, you know, astronauts and, and everything. And you're just seeing that, like, that character doesn't, Carol Danvers isn't Carol Danvers as we know it without all these trailblazers that came before her. And, and she yep. appreciates it. And she's trying to help them throughout all this process at there. And, and like she does, and they, you know, they're doing things to help her. She's doing things to help them. And it just, it, it is, it's, it's really something and it really kind of resonated with me as I, as I was reading it. It did because of the way the story was told with these interludes to kind of explain some of this other stuff that was going on so that when Carol got to the 60s, we knew what was going on with these fighter pilots that wanted to be astronauts. It got a little confusing and then in the in the final like the books five and six we had a we had an artist and color change and so then the uh the style of the book changed a little bit uh, uh definitely the look and feel of it did and and so it got a little bit more confusing there because some of the characters ended up looking rather similar carol and and, and helen cobb actually looked very very similar in the last two books but I just, I really liked this story and it, and it really felt like a, a kind of a, you know, you talked about a reimagining and it just was like, yes, this is, this is a really foundational story. And I'm really glad that I got a chance to read it. Yeah. I will admit I did not, when I read it originally, I like have had, you know, I read it back in the day. I didn't get a lot of these connections because I was just reading it and, oh, that's kind of cool. She took the name Captain Marvel. All right. But this is one where I was, when I was reading through it again and getting ready to actually talk about it, I'm like, there is so much scaffolding in this story. So much that Taconic is doing in terms of sort of building backstory and building sort of this this entire superstructure of support for the character. And it goes beyond the story. Uh, one of the things, uh, we'll put a link in the, in the show notes, but one of the interesting things is that when she took over the title, DeConnick wanted a new costume for Danvers. And evidently Marvel had given her a number of options that she could potentially use, and she didn't like any of them. And she said... I really, really would like for us to get a, a shot at this by Jamie McKelvey, who is, in her mind, and I think in the mind of a lot of people, probably the best 
designer of modern superhero comics or, or of superhero costumes. And Marvel said, no, he's too expensive. We can't, we can't pay that. Um, so you can't have it. Uh, just pick one of the ones that's there. And she, she was like, I really, I really want to see this. So she called up McElvey herself and said, look, we need a new character, a new costume for Ms. Marvel. I think, you know, she's going to be Captain Marvel now. We have to have a, a redesign. I want you to try it. I will bet you that if you redesign the costume, Marvel will pay you for it. And if they don't, I will pay you for the redesign myself. Wow. And, and evidently, when, you know, a major corporation refuses to pay for something because it's too expensive, it would not have been a cheap investment no. for her to to have done this but she was invested enough in the character that she was willing to put her own money on the line to make things better and when you look at like the essentially the black swimsuit and the like that had been her previous costumes and then you look at what they were trying to do with her say in the movie and the like McElvey's costume when it came back is so perfect that yeah. they leaked it before the series even came out and there were already fans all over, like, doing fan art of it and everything, almost from the moment it came out, because it resonated so much. It's a costume that fully covered her, rather than having, you know, open backs and thigh-high boots and everything else like she'd had for decades. And it very much has a military kind of feel. There's almost like a, a, a naval officer's um, feel to the collar. And some of the uh, the gloves and stuff like that, it feels a little bit more armor, and it's got a helmet now that comes down. And you know, with the conics, like if if the helmet comes on, you know things are going to be getting serious because now now she's serious, right? Wow. Um, and even the fact that instead of having the big Cree sort of Captain Marvel, the original had this big fin, almost like uh, Yondu's fin, on his helmet. And now in the in McElvey's redesign, that's just her hair with like a little area that comes out. So her hair turns into the fin instead, which is kind of just a cool alternate look for um, for her, her hairstyle. That was something you hadn't seen with any of the other uh, female characters. So I think that that costume has been really key to a lot of it working. And it comes entirely down to DeConnick just making a bet on herself and a bet on the character. That and and Marvel did see it and they did buy it. So yeah, that's pretty awesome, you know, obviously. And yeah. and because of the fact that it also had like the Starburst symbol on the front and the like, because that was so iconic, it's become something that now has been a marketing bonanza for them as well. There's you know Captain Marvel shirts are easy to tell because it's just that one that one. Uh, kind of Cree star is all you need and you know what that is so really pretty cool and, and basically this costume is almost note for note the costume that Brie Larson wears in the, the Captain Marvel movie yep definitely alright Dwayne so Anything else on this last one, or are we good on that? 
highly recommend if you're interested in yeah. Captain Marvel at all, read those six books and maybe read them a couple times because they take a little bit of they take a little bit of uh, of getting through. It's not the easiest comic reading you'll ever do. So, but so with that, um, favorite story of the week. I'm, I I believe I've kind of set you up on this one because four of them you kind of got little snippets of a story, and one of them you got a complete pretty darn good story. So yes. I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be surprised if we don't know the answer. But what was your favorite story of the week, Dwayne? Favorite story was the 2012 Captain Marvel story. I typically I do not like time travel stories. I think that they uh, end up being a little wishy-washy with regards to how they handle time travel and, you know, cause and effect because of time travel and all this sort of thing. But this really is a foundational piece, uh, set of books when it comes to this character. And I think you're doing yourself a disservice that if you want to understand Captain Marvel and Carol Danvers, this is, this is a great place to start. It is, it is a bit confusing because of the interludes that you have in here. So I totally didn't get what happened at, at points and I had to reread some things, but ultimately this was really, really interesting. And, and just throwing it in there, the first four books specifically, I think are some of the most beautiful looking books that I've seen. There is, they, they have this sort of painted look to them the characters look very photorealistic almost. There's the the shading that is done looks amazing. The the planes that they show, the T6, Helen's plane that Carol takes up looks fantastic. The banshees that we see back in the 1940s look look amazing. And I just I absolutely loved everything about it. The Daily Bugle recap page at the very front of each of these books was just great. You know, books five and six, still really good. Emma Rios, Jordi Belair are on the art and colors on five and six. It starts to take more of a manga sort of look to the characters. They look a little less real. Helen Cobb, Carol Danvers, they look very similar. You you noted there's like a black streak in the hair that is really the only way you can tell the difference between the two. I didn't even pick up on that reading it. But overall, the just the story all the way through, I think, is just so interesting and and it is so empowering for the character that I just it, it, it resonated with me. And it's something I, I think is going to stick with me. And I'm definitely going to be thinking about it as as we watch the movie next week. Yeah. I'll also note that you know, when you talk about the time travel stuff, one of the cool parts about it is that a lot of the, you know, like the captain, the military heroes, everything goes back to World War II for America. So the fact that Captain America was uh, was in World War II punching Hitler, and the fact that Sergeant Fury and his, and his Howling Commandos were originally in World War II, having almost like, you know, with this Banshee squad, Carol has her own sort of Howling Commandos. Yeah. Uh, this group of women that she's fighting with. And it it brings this character again and, and sort of locks in that military background by giving her now sort of a, a toehold in that sort of foundational American war 
that Captain America had and, you know, Nick Fury had and all those guys. At least originally, obviously, it makes no sense now since they're still young guys for them. And Captain, he, he was in the ice. But Nick Fury, uh, the idea he was fighting in World War II is a little weird. But yeah. uh, but nonetheless, it's I, I think that was interesting that that they did find a way, you know, again, it's it's little things, but DeConnick did a really good job of providing all these integrations for the character that just give sort of of authenticity and 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 sort of authority to her her claim on Captain Marvel. You know, it's not only that she took the name, these books show us how she earned it and why yeah. it belongs to her. Yeah. Hmm? So, so fun, favorite artists, it sounds like Captain Marvel 1 through 4, you liked. Um, I will note a 5 and 6 with Emma Rios. There's a, an old artist named Bo Hampton who had this sort of very almost sketchy kind of ethereal style. And Emma Rios really reminds me a little bit of that. So if you're a fan of like the Bo Hampton stuff, that sort of thing, you might really like these books. I think, kind of like you said, it it's different. And I think sometimes being that different is disorienting when you've been used to somebody you liked for four issues. Um, it is good art. So favorite artist of the week then, Dwayne? Sounds like you've uh, you've already made a decision on that one as well. Or... Uh... Yeah, I liked I liked the the Dexter Soy art from Captain Marvel 2012. It, it just it really spoke to me. It really, I think, helped me get into that origin that story and then the background and really elevated kind of that whole that whole set of books for me this week. Nothing to take away from your buddy George Perez. I I actually really liked the art across uh, Avengers 200. It's just the story took me so far out of out of it that I just, you know, no, sorry. I will note from an artist perspective, Dexter Stoy did pretty well for himself this week because you chose him over Gene Colan, one of Marvel's greats, John Buscema, one of Marvel's greats, yeah. George Perez, one yeah. of comics' all-time greatest artists, um, and Dave Cockrum on X-Men one of the co-creators of the X-Men and one of the more popular artists of the seventies. So we had a pretty good, had a pretty good lineup of artists for you. Plus Emma Rios. Uh, I know it wasn't necessarily your cup of tea, but I really enjoyed that art as well. So yeah, we, uh, we had a, we had a good lineup to choose from. All right, before we look ahead to next week, I just wanted to give all of you listeners a heads up. We're going to be loading the Phases of the Moon Knight podcast into the Comics Over Time feed as season one. So there, it is possible over the next few weeks that you might get some extra files in your podcast player. We do apologize for that, but we are, in fact, trying to move move those episodes over so we don't have to pay for multiple instances of Podbean. So uh, you'll have one feed and it'll have access to all of the phases of the Moon Knight podcast and all of the comics over time podcast as we move forward. So just, just a note so that you're aware of that. So if you see some phase of the Moon Knight 
uh, episodes get downloaded into your podcast player, that's what's going on there. All right. Looking ahead to next week, Dan, we've got a movie to watch. We do. We're going to watch Captain Marvel from 2019. I don't know if you were alive and on the internet in 2019, Dwayne, but I was. Let us let us just say that this is a movie that inspired uh, spirited debate in certain quarters on the internet, and sure. so we are still. We're going to go headlong to into this some day, of that. I think does actually <laughs> probably. Um, but we're going to take a look at it. We're going to watch that and then talk a little bit about it. So join I, us next week as we I, steer into the controversy. I'm looking forward to seeing this movie because in a f- less in about a month, we have the Marvel's movie that's coming out that is going to feature again, Captain Marvel along with Miss Marvel and and Monica Rambo. So uh very much yep. looking forward to that. And I definitely feel like I have a lot more information about Captain Marvel than I had going into seeing this movie the first time. Absolutely. And with that, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show. Or if you read some of the comics that were in the stack this week, we'd love to hear what you thought. You could send us those via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. We're also on social media. We're on X at Comics Over Time. We're also on Blue Sky. So send us there at Comics Over Time. Any of those spots Hit us up, let us know your thoughts, and we'll share them on a future episode. Dan, it was great looking at kind of the history of Captain Marvel. I feel very prepared to go in and watch the movie next week, and I'm looking forward to getting together with you and talking about it. Absolutely. going to be fun. See you next week. See everybody else next week. Have a great one. Take care, everybody.